This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. Welcome listeners. So today, the man I'm speaking to has been a personal trainer for 10 years, has qualifications in advanced lower back pain, nutrition for athletes and special populations. Interestingly, has a degree in history and for seven years before becoming a personal trainer worked in various accountancy roles. He's Richard Kelly. Thank you, Lawrence. How are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, it's, it's very weird to be welcome to the show. <laughs> to your own show. Yeah, it's very odd, but you know, there you go. So, right off the back, my first question. Why undergrad degree in history? And also, a reminder of this later, what's your favourite time period? But first explain the degree. This is very simple. So when I was at school and... Everyone used to talk about, you know, what, what career they wanted to do after school, right? I was never certain because I don't really, I didn't really know. So they used to, we used to have these like careers, like sort of um, events where you'd go and sit down and you'd be given uh, some explanation of a job. Someone would come in and say, I work at the bank or whatever, and this is what I do. And then whenever I'd talk about it with like the careers officer, do you remember, the, did you used to have a careers officer? Yes. Yeah. So whenever you talk to like the careers officer, they say, so what are you thinking about doing? And I was like, well, what are the list of all the jobs? Because if you don't tell me what they all are, I can't tell you what I want to do because I don't know what my options are. So as a result of that, I sort of stayed in school because it made sense to me to keep going. And so therefore, when it came to selection of uh, what subject to study after school and going into university, I picked something I was interested in. And I felt that I could continue to do. And I didn't know where that was going to pan out and what that was going to lead to. But that's where I went to. So that's why I ended up doing history. And now the most important part of the question. What's your favourite time period? All right. So first of all, and I'm going to get quite nerdy about this whole thing. is Well, you better get nerdy because you're the one that's got a degree in it. Well, you know. So history is divided into two sections. Okay. Ancient history and modern history. Mon history is post-Reformation. So Reformation is when you've got all the uh, paintings by Raphael and all that stuff, right? So that period of time is counted as modern history. Anything before that is ancient history. So that's your Romans, that's your Greeks. Why is that point called the Reformation? Just because of his paintings? The Reformation encompasses the Enlightenment period, which is when there's a great amount of rediscovery. So this is going to get very nerdy now. So basically, at the end of the Roman Empire, right... When the Romans go down, they, they go down slowly, but the Roman Empire in Europe falls away. When the Roman Empire falls away, we have the period called the Dark Ages, which is no longer called the Dark Ages in technical terms, but is what everyone commonly knows it as. And the reason why it's called the Dark Ages is because they lost the abilities that the Romans had. They didn't have the technology, so we saw a decline in, in standards of living. So basically, the Romans knew how to build bridges over rivers in the Dark Ages, People didn't know how to build bridges because they didn't have access to the materials to know how to build bridges. They didn't know how to do certain things. They lost those skills. So as a result of which, we went back and declined a society across the whole of Europe. So this is why you're seeing the Romans were able to have their aqueducts, right, that could get water from hundreds of miles away into cities, and they had running water in those cities. They had heated flooring because they had underfloor heating. They had vents underneath the tiles on the floor, and they had um, points where they'd light fires, and it would heat up using the vents, right? It's not the same as our heating, 
but it's still amazing. It's still amazing, right? And they had running water, right? Now you think about how many times your water supply gets cut off. That happens now, right? Romans didn't have that problem, <laughs> right? So in a way, they're more advanced, and then we've lost that technology. So that's when the Dark Ages occurs. So once the Dark Age period finishes, you then go into the Enlightenment, and that's the start of what they describe as modern history. So my degree is in modern European history. So therefore, when I'm discussing stuff, you have to bear in mind that's the time window I'm in. So that's a long preamble to explain that in terms of favourite time period, for me, looking around the Napoleonic era pre-industrial revolution. So the reason why is because it's a time of great change. We have a shift away from the focus on the great men, which is where you've got a focus on kings and queens and what they do, and more a focus into what groups of people are doing in society. So what merchants are doing, what politicians are doing, the rise of, say, uh, parliamentary procedure, that kind of thing, the rise of how the printing press and spoken word allows people access to information, how we move away from reliance on information being disseminated by the church or by the kings and queens. So we have that period going on. We have the formation of identity in, in terms of like nations. So before this point, this is going to sound really weird. You weren't, you didn't think of yourself as British or English. You thought of yourself as a subject of the king. So you were a king's man or not. So you, so you, Lawrence, would decide whether you're pro Elizabeth or not, and you wouldn't have any association with England. That's quite interesting. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a little bit weird because we don't really have this idea. But the French were the first to put this in place because they changed the title of the king at a certain point from the king of France to the king. Sorry, the king of the French to the king of France. So he's tied to the land, not the people. So the people can choose whether they view him as their king, and then they chopped his head off. But that's a, that's a different story. However, so that's that's the period of time I was most interested in because it ends up with this sweeping thing across Europe where Napoleon basically takes his armies and tries to conquer across Europe. And so you have this old world meets new world problem. And then that is where you see uh, the formation of some of the American ideas, which is still in place now around their own identity and the formation of certain... Uh, democratic principles that come into place in Europe so as an Arsenal fan I forget sometimes that you're a Tottenham fan really do you I forget that because we really shouldn't be friends <laughs> how are you handling for the last couple of years being better than Arsenal as a Tottenham fan and on top of that having a guy like Harry Kane who's amazing but now you know he doesn't want to be with you all right, so this is two questions. So let's, let's deal with this bit by bit. So growing up as a kid, psychologically, we were always behind in chasing Arsenal. It's funny you say that. You've always been the second North London team as long as I've been an Arsenal fan. Yeah. So at that point, psychologically, it has an effect on you. You get damaged and wounded by this, right? <laughs> so you start to create a psychological thing about this, right? So you protect yourself. You just want to beat Arsenal. You just want to have that day in the sun, right? And then you look on and you go, okay, well, they're not that good because they didn't do this or they're not that good because they didn't do that. At a certain level, you want to reach and match that level and overtake it, right? As time has gone on, we've got closer and closer and closed that gap. And then you can see the two clubs are pretty much even except for the fact that Arsenal kept finishing just above us. So it was always one place above and it was always kind of near, you know, last day or... or, or 
the, the game before. So it's very close. But there's still that element of inferiority complex that's, that's there because it's in, you know, it's deep rooted. So then when you finally do it and you achieve and you find that it's very hollow because you've finally overtaken them, you've finally reached that, that point where you're ahead of them and then it doesn't feel, feel as fulfilling because you've achieved and you've gone, we've done it and everyone else is going, okay, well, that's not an achievement. You've not actually done anything. All you've done is beat Arsenal and that's not hard to do these days. What, what's happened is they've declined fast enough that you've managed to just move above them. Yeah. So then this, this is a weird Tottenham-based problem because then there's this equal inferiority complex, this damage problem that's still going on. Whereas I think Arsenal fans of the same era as me have this innate superiority complex because they were always better than us. Yep. So the, the way I equate this is, is the way I look at West Ham is I dismiss them. So if I meet someone who supports West Ham and they try to have a conversation with me about West Ham and Tottenham, I dismiss this conversation because I don't really see them as rivals. They're not. No, they're not. Because they're not at the same level of us as a club. Even now. Right. So I don't view them as the same level. Especially in our era. I remember with my mum and my aunt both being West Ham fans. They were really good up to Christmas. It used to build up our hope. And then after Christmas, they were horrible. Yeah, and then they were a limited club. And obviously after that, they started to struggle. And then they started to go down and come up and go down and come up. So in the last few years where they've had this new stadium and they've got more money, they are able to, to slowly inch their way up, right? But I still sort of dismiss them as a rival because my view on it is is, is the game against them when we play them they view that game as the biggest game of their season when I play them I view this as a nuisance I have to sidestep to for the bigger prizes and I think in the 90s and the early 2000s when we played you we had that same rank so when I'm talking about this innate superiority amongst people of my age it's because you always used to view that match as a, as a tricky match that you had to overcome because of the amount of motivation we had. But ultimately, it's a nuisance for you rather than a rivalry. So now, once we've moved ahead of you, well, there's an element of like refusal to accept that reality amongst your fan base and also this bizarre terror amongst our fan base about the fact that once the status quo re-establishes itself... Where will you sit? Yeah. So are we truly at the same level or not? Now on to Harry Kane. Okay, so the whole Harry Kane saga that's been on all summer, I'm sort of a bit sick of it. He wanted to move to Manchester City. It's pretty clear that he'd been speaking to Manchester City beforehand and had been given some assurances about how his role was going to fit within that team. What's interesting to me is if I was Harry Kane, I'd be fairly upset with Manchester City because they allegedly came in at £75 million when the asking price was 150 so they're in about halfway. And as they already bought a player in the summer for 100, who's a substitute for England, whereas they're trying to buy the England captain from Tottenham, you'd expect that they would know they have to spend more money on, on Kane. So they've obviously decided that he's not worth the amount of money that we wanted. They then came in later on after that for about 100 plus another player that maybe would have taken it up to, on paper, 140 or so million. However, the players they were offering us, you know, it's not of any use for us. So realistically, it's the 100. They never really got to the point where they're offering us any serious money. They're a long way short. The reaction from Kane has been Tottenham failed to live up to a promise they'd had with him. Now, none of us know what that promise is. But it seems to me like if the amount asked for is 150 and you're coming in at 50% of that, 
it's a long way short. It doesn't seem to me like Manchester City made serious moves. However, I think he's going to leave next summer. But how is that possible if the 150 was too much to ask last time? Are Tottenham planning to drop the price? Well, he's currently got three years left on his contract. So by next summer, he'll have two. And therefore, his price will come down because he's got less of a contract. I understand. That's how it works with football. So his price point will come down. Now, ironically, it probably will come down to about 100 million because at that point, if you assume he loses 50 million a year, mm-hmm. that's, that brings him down to that point. Whether Manchester City actually want him at that point is another question. But what we've seen is that his relationship with the fans has been somewhat tarnished. And that's not because of him wanting to leave per se, because I think anyone could realistically go, OK, well, he's done everything he could have done. Yeah. And then the team have not ultimately delivered. So he wants to try something else. And in other sports, people just go, OK, fine, fair enough. You know, when LeBron James left Cleveland, I don't think there were many Cleveland fans going, what's well, his fault we haven't achieved? When it comes to it, you know, you go, okay, well, he's the reason they got to the finals in the first place. Yeah, that's true. Right? But it's the way he left. Yeah. And this is the same with Kane. Because when Kane was trying to leave, through his agent, who is his brother, and through certain media uh, pundits who are his friends, there were some very strong sort of statements being made about what the Kane camp wanted. And what was ironic about these statements is it was very naive in the way they laid them out because they put themselves in a corner and tried to make out that it was an ultimatum or that they could they could make something happen when ultimately I don't think the Manchester City side were particularly that interested so I think they wanted it but they didn't need it so they didn't make an all-out move if Manchester City had come in with say 140 million then it's close enough to the 150 that a real conversation could happen the problem is now is that we now have an unhappy player who ultimately his heart isn't in it. Is he on the bench still? No, he's playing, he's starting. Okay, so he's playing, but has he been scoring goals? None. And how many games have you played? Six. He's only played three games. You could look back to last year and the year before and look at how many games he'd played up to this point and how many goals he'd scored. And you'd probably find out he's really not doing well at all. And the funny thing is I'm an England fan, but not a blinded England fan. He did not play well in the tournament. To be honest, they talk about all of these great players that England have. But if Sterling didn't score goal after goal after goal, they wouldn't have made it far enough in the tournament for Harry Kane to actually wake up and score a goal. This is the concern with Kane is that he has had a lot of ankle injuries. Is he now limited on what he's capable of doing? And what we don't yet know is whether that is what we're now seeing, is that he's out of form and he's actually limited. And that might have been one of the reasons why Man City undershot the price so much. Exactly, because they might have seen that. And equally, the new Tottenham coach is playing a very defensive system and it might not play into Kane's strengths. So it could be the new system, it could be the the toll of the injuries, it could be that his mindset's not there, and in reality it's probably all of them. right? And that's added up. Also, he's a notoriously slow starter, so he tends to go... You know, normally four or five games before he scores. You have advanced qualifications in a number of things, but in terms of special populations, how would you even categorize that? <laughs> what is that? Paralympics? <laughs> so, special populations is weirdly a specific term, but basically it's a catch all for uh, people who are type 1 or type 2 diabetic, who've got high blood pressure, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's balance issues or the older population 
So it's it, right. when you say older population, what age are we going from? Sixty-five and over. Okay. Because it's understanding how their training would need to be adapted specially around their lifestyle. So what would you do for someone who's got type one diabetes? So type one diabetes is more about obviously the relationship between insulin and blood sugar. Yep. The key factors that come in here are about how we monitor their glucose levels relative to training. So okay. in an ideal world, they've got a constant glucose monitor or they've got a way to check that in terms of blood testing before the session, you know, finger pricking. The qualification is designed to work with people who have seen a doctor and then have been referred out. However, in the real world, as we know, doctors don't refer out. <laughs> doctors can be terrible at this. With anyone who's type, type 1 diabetic, it's always good to understand if they understand their levels of blood sugars, where they are and what sort of feedback their own system gives them. Okay. So the, more, the longer they've had uh, type 1 diabetes, the more likely they are to know those things. Yeah. When we're working together, it's understanding how different training methodologies can impact that person. So generally speaking, you'd go for a slightly longer warm-up and a longer cool-down with them because that's then going to help their, control their heart rate and that's going to help their blood sugar delivery to their cells and you'd be very careful about high intensity work because obviously that's the other factor where high intensity comes in is dependent on that individual so some people naturally do better with a long warm-up and then a, a moderate to low level cardio uh, session some people they can't handle that because actually for them that's too intensive and it, it's it's an uncontrolled element that means that their blood sugar dips too low. So therefore, with those individuals, we need to have more of a focus around strength. With a lot of this stuff, it tends to come down as well to the diet side of things because their diet and some of their medications have an impact on the way they train. So when we first met and you wanted to become a personal trainer, what had changed in your mindset from all your various accountancy roles to make you all of a sudden flip and want to be a personal trainer? All right, so we're painting this in a very reductive way. So I'm going to going to give you a little bit of a preamble here so follow, right. follow me through right so once i'd finished university and i've got my history degree i then decided that obviously i need a job so i'm looking around for different jobs to see what i can get and in this process um there was a scattergun approach to me applying for things to see what i could find because i still don't know what i want to do i was contacted at random by uh somebody who's looking for someone to work in an accounts department from that position, I worked my way up through various different roles in different companies, but basically I spent seven years working through different accountancy roles, and that's what gave me the background in accountancy. But I never really had any passion for accountancy roles. It wasn't really... Like, I was good at it, don't get me wrong, but I didn't really feel like it was something I had a deep, innate, burning desire to... So like your calling? Yeah, it just didn't mesh right. Whenever I'd be speaking to anyone else who worked at the company, I felt like I was the bad guy delivering bad news. So I would turn up and say, listen, there's a problem. You can't do this. And then we'd go through the reasons why they couldn't do it. And I'd explain all the reasons why they couldn't do it. And they'd do it anyway. And then after doing it anyway, then it would then sit on my table for me to clean up the mess that had been made that I said not to do. So I felt like I was always the one who was delivering bad news. <laughs> right? Because when you're dealing with salespeople, they want the commission, they want the job. So they're always positive going, I'm trying to generate business, I'm trying to generate money for the, for the company. And I'm the reality stop that goes, you're trying to work with a man who operates out of a dustbin and has sellotaped together his, his website. You can't do this. Their business isn't viable. And then they would come back to me and go, but he's promised us this, he's promised us that. And I will say, he doesn't have that. <laughs> I can see his accounts he doesn't have it. This is not a good a good idea. And then they'll do it anyway. And then because they've done it anyway, 
that company is a problematic company and it sits on my table because I had to deal with the problematic companies. So I then deal with the stuff that I'd warned against. So parallel to this, that's when I really started to get into exercise and fitness. When I left university, I was overweight. I reckon I was about 130 kilos. I don't actually have the number. 130? Yeah, I reckon it was about that. Prior to university, in terms of sporting stuff, I'd done it at school, but a lot of the sports I was put into, and I partly blame this on the school system, was that I'm one of the youngest in my year. So whenever I'm playing rugby and football, physically, I'm nowhere near the same stature as a lot of the kids I'm playing against. So I was never on the school teams, and at our school, if you weren't on the teams, you were basically ignored. <laughs> right? So a lot of my, let's say, formative teenage year training stuff was missed because it wasn't really that focused on. So coming to university, obviously, I never had to do any real training stuff. So that and a combination of university food and alcohol and all the rest of it meant that I was pretty overweight and out of shape. The first thing I did when I joined the gym was I used to run on the treadmill with the goal of getting up to 13 minutes with a one-minute walk and in 13 minutes. So I'd be on the treadmill for 27 minutes. That's not bad. So it's functional training. (laughs) You know you're not allowed to say that word. It's been officially banned from all podcasts. (laughs) So that's what I used to do. So I did that. With a lot of the weight stuff, I was just sort of messing about doing different things variously as they went, and my weight came down quite significantly. I think I got down to 77 kilos. That's literally my weight. Yeah, so it was, it was too low. And that's sort of when I decided that I liked exercise. There was a couple of people from the new company I was working at that decided they wanted to join me and had also seen huge improvements in terms of weight loss, strength, fitness, this kind of thing as well. So I realized that this is actually something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started to qualify as a trainer and that took two years because I had to do it part-time. All right. And then obviously after that, that's when we met. So I think by the time I met you, I was maybe, I think I was still under 80 kilos at that point. But in terms of proportions, I wasn't. I was underweight in terms of muscle and mentality and focus was too much on hammering me to try and get progress. And if you remember, that same year was the the year I got injured five different ways in one week. That's a legendary achievement. How could you be injured in five places in your body in one week? Five different training sessions, got, five different injuries. You've got to work hard to do that. That's when I spent that month doing all that stretching stuff on the floor. So now, being in the industry as long as you have, as a personal trainer, what do you find hardest about the industry? That's a really hard question. There's a lot of things going on in my head right now that could be the right response here because there's a lot of tough things in our industry. People think it's easy and straightforward, but as we both know, There's a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes. I think that one of the things I'd most want to see changed, and it's one of the um, hardest parts to change, is around mentality. Because if you look at a lot of trainers in our industry, there's a big fear they're going to lose a client if they refer that client on to someone else in another field. So if a client gets injured and they need to go and see a chiropractor or a physio or an osteopath, there's a real reluctance for trainers to pass that person on when they should do and to refer that out. And obviously, in in worst case scenario, they are actually injured, but sometimes it's something relatively minor, like they might need just a bit of like massage work or stretching or something that the trainer can't do with them because it's outside their remit, and they're really afraid to pass that on. And and I agree. However, I've had a couple of instances where I've referred people to different disciplines, and then later on, I found out that that person has tried to push a different trainer on them because of some weird allegiance. So. I see it from both sides of the fence. I I totally get that. We know physiotherapists who view us as as good trainers, yet how much work do we get from them? Not much at all. If any. I like your idea or, you know, your thought process for the industry. And 
it is one of those things that needs to be done more. From my experience, you just need to find someone who you can connect with in terms of different disciplines and who has enough respect for you to do their job properly, which sounds funny, but it's not. And on top of that, always give you information back and understand that, you know, your business is just as important as theirs. Yeah, and I think this is this is where it becomes a big issue because ultimately it's one of trust. You have to trust the other person and you have to, as you said, respect them and, and what they do because the best relationships I've had with um, physiotherapists or osteopaths have been ones where we both know where the crossover point between what we do is and we understand where that point actually is in place. And it's different for different people and different for uh, working with different individuals, obviously, but knowing where that is, is is vital. And I think that if our industry was to change that mentality and focus and get more referrals to it, as well as refer more out from it, then we'd see a huge benefit for everyone. Yeah, you're right. But on many occasions, I've had working relationships with people from different disciplines. However, I've referred to them, but they haven't referred much to me. Yeah, I found that as well. Or the voice promised, but never done it. Yeah, and that's why I want to see it changed in the industry, because I think... There's points as well where I've I've worked with someone who, say like a physio, and they've told me they've had someone for three years who's been coming to physio with them. And they've managed to convince that person they need to go and see someone who's a, you know, a trainer, someone who's more regularly fitness-based. Because of the way physiotherapy works, they've, they're really still at the same point they would have been if they'd have come to see me after six months of doing physio. They shouldn't, they shouldn't have been doing physio for the two-and-a-half-year period because it was of no value for that individual but that hasn't been sold to them correctly and they felt that that's, you know, the physio work was enough. What are the most vital parts of a training session for you? Hmm. So I'd, I'd probably go, obviously, the warm-up is, is vital because mm-hmm. if you get the warm-up right, everything else follows. And a lot of the time with a lot of people, I'm doing similar sort of warm-ups with everyone, but it's largely to see how they move to then dictate what I do next in that warm-up. The second area is probably connection. So it's working out what level of um, communication that person operates at, whether they like to have a conversation and they need some reassurance or whether it's someone who just wants to get down to work and go. So obviously that's a personality-based thing. And then it's at the same point in each individual session working out the um, amount of workload that person's actually physically capable of. Because obviously if someone's come into that session with a poor night's sleep, they're on a a day that's relatively high stress, they're going to perform worse in their training than if it's a more relaxed day, an easygoing session. So then that's that's also part of that connection process for me. I like the connection thing, because it is hard, but there are actually two camps in this type of situation. The clients that like to talk while they're training and talk during their breaks, and the clients that like to focus while they're doing the exercise, and in the breaks, stay focused and assess what they've just done. I had a new client recently who, amazingly, whenever she does the exercise, she just zones in on that one exercise, which is incredible. But she zones in so much. After the exercise, I would ask her, was it hard? Do you need to go heavier? Was the weight appropriate? You know, all the normal questions, how fatigued are you? And she would say to me, Lawrence, I don't know. Because she was so dialed in. She didn't even have, she didn't even have time to think about such a significant thing. Yeah, and equally you have those clients where it's the opposite, where as soon as you set them the exercise, they're just robotically doing the movement and they're not, they're not consciously there because they're thinking about something else. And it's about how 
you can bring them back in and how much you can allow them to do that because obviously in certain uh, activities you do with them you can allow them to be a little bit thoughtless and, and just let their mind drift off into something else if they need to get that out of their mind and if the exercise is more about stress relieving than it is about a goal like you know weight loss or strength or whatever then you might well end up just going right my role here is to release their stress to make it more fun then it doesn't really matter too much if if they're not 100% paying attention to the exercise but you do obviously need them to come in and out of that session so it's how you then dial that in and when it's someone who's totally focused and driven on what they're doing you'd want to work around um, at that moment around how they can connect in and get more insight into what they're doing totally what would you pick as your three favourite pieces of equipment ah just three just three not like 20 25 nope so because i do a lot of strength work for myself i'm gonna say if i had to pick three bits of equipment just for me then i'd probably pick a barbell one of those crossover cables because that gives me more options i'm assuming i get all the handles yes and i'll have a swimming pool and if you don't let me have a swimming pool i'll have a swiss pool i like your choices but the one standout for me is a swimming pool because most people wouldn't think about it it's that one element or facet of our training that isn't there. No additional force on the body. It's amazing. It's like the big brother of the concept too. <laughs> it's just the ultimate thing. Well, you can also, I mean, as you pointed out, you can do cardio work in there and you can do a range of stuff. You can do, you can do your long distance endurance work. You can do sprints. You can do HIIT training in there. You can deload the joints in there. You've also got the rehab stuff in there because you can do deloaded work for joint mobility. Theoretically, if you had a pool and then you had your workout space next to it, you could do some amazing mobility work in there. Honestly, looking back over the years playing basketball, I was at my fittest when I used to go to basketball training, then swim for 45 minutes after. There's one really? drill that we used to do game speed drill where you would do a layup yeah run to the other side of the key shoot a shot run up even higher and shoot another shot that was one rotation right you would do that 10 times on each side okay that year when i was swimming i got to the point where i know it isn't true but it honestly felt like i didn't have a pair of lungs in my chest <laughs> at no point during that drill did i feel out of breath yeah, because it gives you that work capacity for, for the lungs. And it's it's a different type of cardio to running or cycling. It's the best. Yeah. And I, I think it's 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 so underappreciated as, as a skill. And I, I get the whole, you have to go somewhere specific to do it because it's really hard, especially in London, to find a pool. But then that's the reason why it's got such a bad rep or that's why it's so underutilized compared to something like running. Running, you've got the freedom to do it wherever you are. However, in London, more than anywhere else, there's so many, there's so little options in terms of where you can go to swim. Absolutely. And then equally, if you look at the way um, swim swim teams like polo teams or uh, swim swimming actual uh, athletes will work, they'll have a work like a, a gym station on the side of the pool. So you'll you'll do your swim, you'll jump out, and you'll do some strength training work, and you'll get back in again. Because it's the idea of you're getting in and out. It's part of the training. So, part of my ideal gym facility, which in my mind I'm getting. Yeah. There's going to be a really small pool with a current machine. 
Yeah, the endless pause, yeah. No, they're not called endless pause. Are they not called endless pause? No. Oh, they, that's that one with the glass. I yeah. can't remember what they're called. So, the swimming pool with a current machine in it. A very small one. Okay. What type of training do you like the most? Quick fire. At the moment, I do a lot of strength stuff. That's sort of where I've ended up, and it's because I think that it suits uh, my body naturally best in terms of the feedback I get in terms of hormones and process. Okay. Are there any beliefs or approaches that you used to have that you do not have anymore? Yeah. So, and actually stole this question from me. But, yeah. Uh, in terms of when I started out, I probably focused too much on intensity in training sessions. So that was one of the drivers because at that point, in terms of learning, there was a lot of focus around the benefits of stuff like HIT and getting the intensity up and really... But then that was because that's what a commercial gym teaches. It, it is, but it's also as well the literature at that time coming out was all mm. around that. So that's that's where a lot of the kind of the new, if you want, training stuff was going. And then the second thing is probably when I planned sessions out, I was too rigidly following the plan to the point that I wasn't really reading the client as well as I should have done. Whereas now I've got inbuilt flexibility in there. So like I said, when I do the warm up stuff, you can check their level. You can feed in how much intensity you want to put into that session and then be more flexible around it. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, the younger Richard, is there anything you would tell him or advice you would give him knowing what you've been through? When we're talking about the younger Richard, what year are we talking? Like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 25 years ago? Let's 25 say years ago is probably less useful, but... 10 years ago. Okay, so... Just before you came into the industry. Okay, so I'd probably say do more reading and research around training. Get to know more. In an ideal world, get some time to try and contact individuals who are at the high end of the field, people who are like specialist coaches in strength and conditioning or in working with athletes around recovery or whatever, and see if they will give you some advice. The thing that I would also underline, and I think it benefited both of us, was we stayed very broad in our approaches for a long time, so we didn't get too bogged into specialties. So there's a tendency now in our industry for people to come in and do these niche star things and go, right, I'm going to train women who are 30 to 32 who work in as flight attendants or something like that, and I'm, that's, that's who I train. And so you'll really box yourself into a little niche group where you're saying they all tend to have the same issues and they all tend to do the same things. But it really limits your skill base because you might be relatively successful there, but you're going to get limited on how successful you are and you, and if anything comes up outside of that remit, you're stuffed. So I think encouraging the younger me to stay broad in the way we did was crucial. So you spoke a lot or you've spoken a lot about, you know, your knowledge and your reading over the years. What fitness professional or author has most influenced what you do today? So do you know who Michael Boyle is? Vaguely. So... Michael Boyle is a strength and conditioning coach in the US who worked a lot with hockey teams. He now works with American football teams, I think. And what's interesting is, is his teams always improve when they hire him. So whoever hires him sees an improvement in performance. And it's because the way he works is in a group setting, but around individual focus. So he uses a modified version of FMS to progress people and a focus around unilateral training. 
So 10 years ago, before I got into the industry, and I was looking around trying to get into the industry, me being me, I got one of his books on strength and, uh, strength and conditioning and functional training. I know you don't like that word, but that's the title of the book. So the book that I read completely blew me away and changed my approach to a lot of stuff. So before that point, I was a little bit, let's say, naive or generic in terms of my approach point for how you'd work with individuals. Someone wants to do strength work, you do X, Y, and Z. Someone wants to do uh, weight loss, you do X, Y, and Z. This book completely changed my focal point and introduced this concept of assessing people, what to look for, how to how to view joints. So it's got all the stuff in there that I still use now about joint by joint approach and this kind of stuff. So for me, it was absolutely formative that I read that book. If I hadn't read that book, I don't think I'd be in the same position I am now because it completely changed my, my thinking around a lot of stuff. So ultimately that book is what led me down the rabbit hole of looking at stuff from Poliquin and that book is the reason why I started looking at stuff from Kelly Starrett. And from there is where I've got a lot of the other stuff that I've sort of brought through. Even now, being in the industry as long as you have, and thinking back, you know, with your type of analytical mindset, where's your next point of development? Okay, that's a good question. I think you'll agree with me on this, but the biggest thing that's about to impact our space is mental health. When you take into account the way that young people have concerns around gender identity and the environmental crisis and all of this stuff, we're seeing a growing issue around mental health. So I think down the line, understanding how to work alongside someone who's got depression, anxiety, mental health concerns, who has identity issues will be crucial. It's not just working with them in terms of a business perspective because that's what you're going to encounter. It's also getting the best for them because the way you train those people is absolutely critical. Um, I've worked with individuals who've had panic attacks, for example, in sessions, and it's quite odd to see because their heart rate starts racing and then irrational thinking comes in. So the way they react around training becomes odd because they're doing something and in the middle of it, they're having a panic attack. So understanding how you can get their heart rate down and what to do and being generally more compassionate about that is vital. That's an interesting standpoint and take. And you're right. Mental health is going to be a massive issue over the next decade or so, especially with a new generation now as they're hitting the beginning of adolescence. There's going to be a lot of mental health help needed around in the workplace and just generally day to day. Exactly, and that's that's I think where the next that's I think where the next major um, trend is going to go because because if you don't know how to work with uh, individuals who are suffering with these problems and you just dismiss it, then you're going to quickly find yourself obsolete in that field. Thank you very much, Richard, for answering all those questions. And listeners, we'll see you next week.